get my uh, my serious introduction voice going here. On September 22nd, 2004, Oceanic Flight 815 crashed on a seemingly uninhabited island in the South Pacific. There were 48 survivors. This is Get Lost, a podcast about those survivors and their experiences on the island. I'm your host, Jonathan Kennedy, joined by my co-hosts, Aaron Mick, and newly stranded Lost fan, Sarah Black. Welcome to Get Lost, episode four, the only Lost podcast taking place on this, the day that Donald Trump was diagnosed as COVID-19 positive. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Jonathan, as always, with my dear friends, Sarah and Aaron. Say hi. Hello. Hey. (laughs) How are you guys doing? Oh, swell. Caffeinated. Very caffeinated because I provided the coffee. Apologies to I am, your insights. <laughs> I am. I'm. I just drank my third coffee of the day. I. Uh, nice. I was up late celebrating Trump's COVID <laughs> diagnosis last night, and then I was up late the night before listening to Mouth Dreams, which uh, you know, if anyone, <laughs> we, we sample. We just uh, had to listen to it as homework for the episode. Yeah, we. <laughs> if anyone we were assigned to, this listening. <laughs> if anyone might be listening and doesn't hasn't seen me post mouth dreams everywhere else, it's you know, taking the mashup to weird new places. Uh, <laughs> An auditory experience, that's for sure. <laughs> it's absolutely beautiful. Uh, yeah, so we're covering what episodes are we covering here? Uh, nine, nine through twelve. Solitary, raised by another. All the best cowboys have daddy issues and whatever the case may be. Uh, Oh boy, we're starting to get into some crazy territory. Yes. And we have philosophy books in front of us, so that's a lot, kids. Before we start, actually, uh, we missed two very important uh, Lost-related dates uh, since our Uh-oh. last episode. One, we recorded our last episode on the day of uh, the, what's her name? The plane the, crash. The, no, no, no. The, no. the day the, the actor who plays Rousseau, it was her birthday the day we recorded last. Oh, that's right. Oh, uh, nice. Yes. Yeah, I don't have her name in front of me. I forget. Um, but the, the date of the crash has also passed since and the date of yeah, the series premiere. So happy belated crash day. Hmm. Happy belated, belated crash day <laughs> to you too. <laughs> Actress uh, Mira Furlan. Happy happy belated, Mira. Cool. All right. And so first... what a timely time to t- timely time to bring up uh, Rousseau because, as we know, we start to meet her in one of these episodes. Yeah. Yeah. In episode is... nine, solitary. She's actually such a good character. I love her. Mm-hmm. She's great. And the actress herself, I mean, she really is frightening. <laughs> Correct. Scary. Spooky and scary. So Sarah, what, were your, uh, what, what were your, your thoughts, uh, initial Sarah. thoughts? Okay. So initial thoughts. So full disclosure, I'm hooked. And that means that I've watched ahead significantly <laughs> by accident. Of course. But but I'm I've promised that I'm going to start taking better notes as I watch so that I can tell you how I felt <laughs> on the way. And I re-reviewed all of these episodes today. And um, yeah, okay, so the first impression of Solitary is that A, like we just said, Rousseau 
was just such a striking character to be introduced to because firstly, it's the, you know, it's the first time that we uh, find somebody else on the island. Like until this point, we have not seen anybody else and we think that it's just the uh, crash survivors from the middle section of the plane. We don't know for sure. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know. Like there are probably hints because of the signal and all that, but like we aren't, we aren't guaranteed that. So we find her and it's the first time that like sort of a mystery is solved. Cause she's like, that was my voice on the signal. Um, like the, the one, you know, the French one, 16 years triangulation. Anyway, we all know. And, um, <laughs> and so it, it's kind of like, okay, this is when it's starting to get a little juicy. And because she's so captivating, um, very, very good at playing such an intense, scary person who I think she really embodied being on the island for 16 years alone. Well, yeah. Um, so that was, that was pretty cool. And then um, nice to get some background on uh, Saeed. And I know that we're going to go into this in more detail, but again, it's just very cool to see a show in 2004 portray the Middle East in this way and Arab characters in this way. And I know as that having, from you know, reading humanity. <laughs> yeah, as having actual as being humans, humans. <laughs> and um, just like the nuance there was is really really cool to see, um, especially given the time. And I know just from reading the notes briefly that this was something they were really um, intent on making sure that it did come across this way and that mm-hmm. they did do this correctly or as correctly as they could have. So so yeah, it starts getting to be. Um, it's, it starts getting to be like, where's my brain? I'm just trying to think about the words. It's less cheesy than it was in the beginning. It's starting to pull me in. You know, I'm, I'm getting to the point now where I've sort of like forgotten that I'm doing this for a podcast and I just let it play <laughs> for like five episodes at a time, which is which just is unavoidable, to, the show's credit. to be honest. Yeah. And it's to the show's credit. It's, it's, it's becoming a great show. And then I'll just kind of maybe summarize them all at once. Like a first thoughts. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. So then we have, we talk um, about them in, in a block. Yeah. So then we have raised by another, we get Claire's backstory. So this is the first introduction of something, maybe not first, but I know the writers thought it was a big risk to introduce this psychic and that he was, um, able to sort of like predict what might happen on the island or he knew something was bad for Claire was coming up. We don't really know what he saw yet. Um, so that's cool. So we've got both like some answers coming up, like, you know, we like Rousseau and the signal, that question's getting answered, but then more mysteries are being unfurled. So I think at this point to me, it was like in the beginning, and I think I might've said this in the first episode of the podcast, I was looking at the show like, okay, well, they're only on an island, <laughs> you know, and I think I said this, like how much, how much plot can there be? Lol. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew that was an LOL statement, but now like it, they're just opening a ton of doors and it's yeah. like this huge pyramid, right? Or like, it's, it's just like branching outward like that. So it's cool because it starts getting more complex and you start having to like keep track of things, especially we get to like end of episode 10, beginning of episode 11. And Ethan is another character that comes in. And then it's like, okay, well, Rousseau thought she was here alone. Ethan, Aaron's laughing at her notes because she has Ethan scary, (laughs) (laughs) which is true. He's another goddamn creepy character. What, What part of Ontario do you think Ethan is from? 
Uh, yeah, I know. Niagara well, his, Falls. Okay. Niagara <laughs> Falls is in an episode of Lost, so I'm just determined that. Well, his last name is Rom, so I thought maybe he was from the Royal Ontario Museum. <laughs> <laughs> just grew up in the Royal Ontario. <laughs> I thought he grew up in the Rom, which would explain why he's such a freak. <laughs> Honestly, I kind of uh, yeah. Okay, so we get Friday nights at the Rom were his only entertainment. <laughs> that was what he thought was nightlife was. <laughs> I really hope all of our listeners are Canadian who, or even Toronto. Antonians who can understand. Google Friday Nights of the Prom. That's what we did before COVID. Um, so, okay, so then we get Ethan, and then it's like, again, it's this other door of like, okay, well, uh, Rousseau comes across in the beginning to me at least. She came across as like trustworthy in a sense of like, she's just so cautious. She's been locked up for 16 years. She just wants her son back. Um, but like, I still see her as, or I saw her when I watched this as like, you know, she's a good guy. Like she, um, she says like, you know, we got shipwrecked. She's been living alone. She, she put up that signal. So she's kind of seems like a woman who is in trouble, but she's been defending herself and she's surviving. And you just kind of feel for her because even though she, you know, uh, kind of ties up Saeed and electrocutes him before really like even asking him, letting him say his side of the story i feel for her when i see her right but then ethan is like this other thing where ethan comes across to me as like he's just evil right like he's portrayed as like as the second we realize that ethan is not on the flight manifest and then he he pans to like him looking at claire and charlie in the forest and he's like trey creepy trey creepy (laughs) we're like oh he's a bad guy so then scary ethan's scary And he is. And they chose two really good actors for those parts. If they want, if that's if that's what they were trying to do. They, Honestly, they one well. of Lost's strong suits is its casting, especially its casting for its yeah. villains. Yeah. Well, and they know how to use. I mean, I know that I joke every week about how hot everyone is, but I just <laughs> I can't emphasize how carefully they use beauty for their characters because mm-hmm. Rousseau, I mean Mira as an actress, like she's so gorgeous and so striking, very striking, which is yeah. so interesting in a scary character yes yeah especially because they have her as kind of like well she's disheveled she's paranoid Mm -hmm. she's whatever so they kind of almost have her as this like in my mind this like old crone character where like you can see in the woods yeah like you can see where she might have been beautiful once and now she's like this paranoid old woman and i know she's not old but like Yeah. yeah she's hardened over time um and then, so with Ethan, we kind of, okay, so backtrack a little bit. When yeah. I meet, um, when we meet Danielle, that's sort of, she brings up this idea of the others. There's others out there. There's whispers in the woods. Um, and the others, um, you know, uh, got to her, for, like there's a sickness that got to her crew, that, like her uh, research team. And she had to kill them all. Like, you know, she tells us all this about how she had to kill them. Yeah. Um and then uh, we meet Ethan, and I'm thinking, oh, for sure, Ethan is an other. Right, yeah. And they set it up that way, I think. Yeah, so. Yeah, absolutely. And still to this day of my walk, like, I'm not terribly far ahead. I'm half a season ahead. But to this day, that's what it appears to me. Uh, you know, like, Ethan is an other. Um, so we meet him, and then he kidnaps Claire and Charlie and then there's the crazy episode where they find Charlie in the woods and he's hung and yeah. it's wild it's scary it's scary and and actually um i read a note about that episode that they were going to do a scene where there are like others 
shooting darts at them from the woods. Like, but instead they chose to have Ethan come down, talk to Jack and be like, if you don't stop following us, I'm gonna kill, kill, one, kill of them. one of yeah. them. Um, yeah, I feel like they might Lindel- use the, I can't, it's hard for me to remember now, but uh, mm-hmm. I feel like they might use that a idea a later. little later in the series. Okay. Like maybe in season two. Right. So Lindelof apparently said that was too cheesy for this episode, which I thought was <laughs> funny because of the idea of cheese. Um, but yeah. I do think that that would have changed the plot a bit too, because yeah. we only meet Ethan. And so right now I'm not, you know, at this point, I'm not convinced there are others plural. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, who's Ethan? Part of me wonders like, was he on the other part of the plane? And I'm like, okay, no, because he wasn't on the flight manifest. But like, who Can is this guy? Can I ask you guy? a question? Yeah. Okay, so I have the, I'm interested right now mm-hmm. in the notion of character credibility. Mm-hmm. And this is something I think about in my own work more broadly because of the trope of the woman not being believed in the horror movie. Mm-hmm. Right. So we have these ideas about who's credible and who is not. And that's given to us by the content and the form of whatever we're watching, Mm -hmm, obviously. mm -hmm. But I'm wondering, like, what is it about Rousseau that makes us as viewers believe her not to be credible and leads Saeed to think that she's not credible? Like, we see Saeed do the same things to Sawyer and to other people in his flashback as Rousseau does to him. Yes. But we know him to be credible or we believe him to be credible. In terms of he does the same thing as in like torture. Yes. Yeah. Same, same torture, same not letting people answer, same, yeah. you know, whatever. It's the same tactics. And mm-hmm. so I wonder like, what is it in, what is Lost doing? How does it work? And is there like a gender operation here that makes us believe Rousseau not to be a credible character. So when I first met her, I thought she like the very first episode, which is episode nine, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Where we see her and her little bunker. I thought she was credible, but like very, obviously very paranoid and had like a lot, went through a lot of shit. Yeah. But then as time progresses, I think she becomes less credible uh-huh. and re- immediately to Saeed, she's, She's not credible, even though he emerges from her cave or whatever, uh, escapes this like fake shootout with her where he tries to fire the gun. The gun doesn't fire off because she took the pin out of it. And she's like, that's what happened to my husband. Like he tried to shoot me too. And then he runs away through the woods and hears the voices that she talked about, but immediately is like, I must have been dehydrated. Right. Right. He doesn't even believe his own ears. Yeah. So I think like to a certain extent, maybe her character is, this is just an idea, but is like representative of the, like how horrible the truth must be. Like people don't want to believe her because if you believe her, that means that, fuck it's gonna be really bad because she's like you know everyone died from this illness blah blah blah. and if they believe that then they would all just have to be worried or Mm -hmm. whatever so it's like easier to not believe her um but i am not much further ahead with her like i've only seen her a couple of times yeah and she does maybe get less credible i don't know it's an interesting thing about portraying her because I don't know if it's gender related, like I'm sure it is gender related, but so far I've seen her so few times. And we don't get her backstory hard really. to know. Until way late, way, right, you know. Okay, yeah, so. She, she does, she's a steady character in a way, but. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel like one of the things they're kind of trying to do with Rousseau, and this is kind of one of the things I was going to touch on, right? Mm-hmm. Like actually yeah. get to talking about Rousseau as a philosopher. Hopefully it's a good segue. <laughs> is, uh, well, the 
it kind of seems like, you know, this is our second enlightenment philosopher that we've gotten, you know, and we yes. still, you know, eventually we'll get, you know, a character named after David Hume as well. Yes. Um, yeah. And the, the first, the first being John Locke, of course. Yeah. 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 Is what you're referencing. Uh, yeah. For all of our first time listeners. Yeah. yeah. And it kind of, <laughs> it kind of sets up like a thematic of like the, you know, enlightenment reason versus faith kind of thing that they, yeah, you know, I, I feel like that's kind of a thing they're trying to draw out, right. you know, through those character names and, you know, the, right. um, so the she's relationships another of those character. characters in, in a sense, like, um, well, they give the philosopher names to the characters who are mo- more invested in faith, which is kind of an interesting choice. Yeah. Um, I would say. But until we get to actually, yeah, Hume counts too. Anyways. Yeah. And one of, one of the things that I just had in my notes, like I, I don't have a whole lot to really get into on Rousseau just because I didn't have a whole lot of time. But um, there is in uh, Louis Althusser's book, Lessons on Rousseau, he mm-hmm. talks about uh, Rousseau's retreat from reason um, in his like later work, which... Uh, he viewed as, hold on, let me find my note here. Uh, what do I say? In Lessons on Rousseau, Althusser talks about Rousseau's retreat from the reason of other Enlightenment philosophers because he viewed reason as a social and as social and is therefore incapable of grasping the state of nature. Uh, according to Althusser, Rousseau's mistake is that by invalidating reason itself, not just an error in reasoning, he renders himself powerless. Rousseau leaves this circle by way of the inside, Althusser explains, by going back into himself and listening to the voice of his heart. So I kind of see that dynamic playing out in, mm-hmm. you know, Renee lands on the island. You know, they shipwreck on the island. She's a scientist. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, she's kind of in the 16 years that she has been stranded there by herself. She's kind of, you know, lost her capacity for reason in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, because she's been tested by the island sort of exactly, in a way. Yeah. Like she's not able to explain the state of nature of the island, so to speak. I have an interesting quote from this summary that is sort of rough. So this is the... Aaron's deep into the books over here. I'm deep into the books. Well, there's this absurd tome of modern philosophy texts that I was assigned when I was an undergrad doing a minor in philosophy. So it's by Forrest E. Baird, and it's volume three of Modern Philosophy, the sixth edition. And there's a chapter on Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And, you know, there's always a summary before you get a sample of the work from the philosopher. Mm -hmm. And this is Baird's interesting little summary of some of Rousseau's thoughts. Um, Okay, so Rousseau later in his 20s, Rousseau realized in a flash that far from saving humankind, the arts and sciences were bringing ruin. The more sophisticated and learned society became, the less happy, less virtuous, and more corrupt the people became. In fact, the rationalism of his age was destroying the spontaneous feelings that liberate the individual. Moreover, the arts and sciences neither rise from nor lead to morality. As Rousseau put it, Astronomy was born of superstition, eloquence of ambition, hatred, falsehood, and flattery, geometry of avarice, physics of an idle curiosity, and moral philosophy, like all the rest, of human pride. Thus, the arts and sciences owe their birth to our vices. <laughs> not, That's a very clear... Not a bad description, <laughs> but like, you know, in terms of the lens of a human it dictating all of it. Like. I mean, yeah, and then if you if you want to draw that line to, to loss, Danielle believes that i mean 
how much do we know about her in this episode? I don't want to give too much away, but we know that she's a scientist and that she came with the team and we know she we know murdered she, her whole team. We know she, yeah, and one of those people was her husband and her son got stolen. We know right. that so far. Well, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, we know <laughs> that. That is interesting. Did you hear that, Jonathan? I did, I did, did hear, hear that. I, oh, I, I, I don't want to. No, 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 no. I don't want to. We're not changing anything. That's perfect. It's, 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 it's something intentional point. from the show that you'll, yeah. you'll get eventually. And I forgot about that. Okay, so the reason I say anything I just said, I just want to recap in case I misunderstood so far. No, no, don't touch it. You're okay. fine. That was a perfect but summary. She, but she says something about like, like she, like, cause I know about the husband cause he tried to shoot her. Like yeah. she brings him up mm-hmm. and then she also like starts off with like, where is Alex? And she says, Alex is my son. Okay. Okay. Aaron's does she not say, does, does she I'm just, explicitly I'm just say? not. We're not, I, we're not going to, I don't want to question this. So maybe I've misgendered Alex. Okay. No, I, no, 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 okay. no. Like, okay. I think that we should just leave this alone. Okay. Okay. Um, Cause it's sort of a beautiful little moment, but I, I think um, <laughs> she, like, what's interesting. And the reason I brought up this quote. Well, I know Alex summary. is her child. Cause then. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. Okay. No, you haven't said anything wrong. <laughs> okay. This is exactly what the show has Confused. told you. I'm like going to go look at the script of the show. To see no, no, you're good. This is exactly <laughs> okay. what the show has told you. So okay. Don't, don't okay. Okay. That. Good. Like I'm, I, and I also know that things that I think now might, change of course okay <laughs> but they talk um this is important though because they start she she keeps talking about the sickness about how they all got sick yes yes and i she had to think that all. there's some question about what sickness on the island um means absolutely right? I, I still don't know what that means yeah and we we know that there's something a little bit amiss with how claire's pregnancy is proceeding she she we see that she's bleeding in episode 10 yes um we know that there's something operating with how people survive Ooh. on the island. We know it heals. We know it has healing qualities because of John. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, we also, um, two things about Rousseau. One, apparently they were going to make the team, the sign, the team that's, what do they say they're studying? Biology or something. They, they sailed from Tahiti. They're something some to do with science. the island's yeah. specific qualities. Um, and they were going to say that the team was researching time, ah. but then they thought that that would be too much too soon for the plot. Mm. Right. Um, interesting. Which I thought was interesting because time is obviously a big thing here. Yeah. Not to get too much into that right now. And the second thing about Rousseau um, is that one of the things I think in the episode that switches is she seems credible. You almost feel bad for her, mm-hmm. like blah, 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 until the end when she's like, I shot them all. Cause they were sick. And then you're like, um, are you sure? you <laughs> yeah. Like, are you sure you didn't just have like a moment where you should have like, you know, had a breather and sat down and dealt with your trauma instead of shooting everybody. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, so like, um, so that's the thing that I think that starts to make her not credible. Cause you're like, well, like she's a murderer too. And, you know, in a sense, we don't know what happened yet, but anyway. The reason I asked, it was a very leading question, so I'm going to wrap myself out. Okay. Because the reason I ask is because I just think it's interesting mm-hmm. how, I have an agenda here that's outside of the show, so I'm really sorry that I'm bringing my shit into our podcast. <laughs> I literally pulled no, up episode nine script to see if I, okay. anyway, go ahead. So I, but I, my agenda here is basically like, I just think it's so interesting uh-huh. what's happening to viewers and to other characters because Okay, here's what we know. Right. We know Ethan's not on the fucking manifest. Yes. We know that he kidnaps Charlie and Claire yes. and hangs Charlie. Yes. We know that he's violent and we know that he's d- like definitively not part of the group. 
Yes. We know that Rousseau has been on the island for 16 years. Yes. And we know that there were people with her and that she murdered them all. But she's also telling us that they were sick. And we know that the island has bizarre qualities. And we know that the mysterious things have been happening. And we know about the smoke monster. So we know that the island is fucked up. And we know that Ethan's not from the manifest. And still, we don't believe Rousseau. Right. And that's so interesting because it demonstrates one of the biggest, like, Achilles heel to use my obsessive Greek mythology <laughs> imagery fine. again. But the I think one of the biggest Achilles heels, a bi- that's, not, that's not a good English sentence, but it's fine, it's is, fine. is that mm-hmm. um, no one believes each other on the island. Despite yeah. having clear evidence, they all are so stubborn There's a in their own paranoia. beliefs. And Saeed literally hears voices and then blows off his own experience Yes. Because he's just so determined not to have any faith in the island's mysterious qualities. I mean, it's just so interesting how the island um, is so clearly mysterious, but the characters themselves refuse to believe it. And then the audience echoes that disbelief so effectively. I mean, it's it's interesting filmmaking. I'm reading the script. It's it's funny (laughs) that you bring that up because like there's there's just a throwaway line. But Saeed himself has like a I, I don't. I, I can't remember if it's in one of the episodes that we watched or in like one of the next episodes, but he gives Shannon a pair of uh, sandals that he finds. And she's like, oh, these are my size. My, I swear my feet have expanded, you know, half a size or something since we got here. And Saeed's just like, right. you know, another mysterious force on the island revealed. Right. Like what? It's like they, they know that something's amiss yeah. and still are just so stubborn about it. And then the audience echoes that stubbornness. I mean, right. it's incre- I mean, it's incredible. If you think about it, I mean, it really gives some it's enlightening for how stubborn <laughs> people are in, with, with regards to their, for instance, politics in the modern age. <laughs> Who is um, Alex? Alex was my child. OK, so I assumed it was a son. I and see you, what I've done. And, we shouldn't and that's, have that's it, also, Jonathan. We shouldn't have pressed it. <laughs> but well, I'm that's, re-looking at the script. That's, that's also because uh, Saeed keeps saying, who was who was he? Who was Alex? Yeah. yeah. And oh, I see. I you're see. specifically meant to assume. To assume. Yes. Okay, and okay. I just had forgotten that that was something that I just had totally assume. forgotten right. because I know. Well, it's fair enough. They, they you know, they chose a, a gender neutral name, like, for the time. That was very, you know. Alex yeah. could be anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and she doesn't argue it either no, when he says he. So it's, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Uh, she also brings up the Black Rock in this episode. I forgot that. She she starts saying we were headed back from the Black Rock, and that's when everyone got sick oh, yeah. or something. So Do you know what the Black Rock is yet? We do not yet. I do. We do not. <laughs> I do. Okay. We do not. The proverbial well, we does not. And I think when, like, when we at get this to time, that, actually, that's... The first thing that ever made me realize um, my whole thing about Lost being ma- a magical realism based show is actually the Black Rock is a direct reference to a scene in 100 Years of Solitude. Yeah, that's ah, right. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, didn't like, I remember that, reading 100 Years of Solitude and thinking, holy shit, that's like the Black this Rock. Is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but uh, no spoilers. Uh, I'm not there yet. I mean, I am in real life, but not in this episode. Um, <laughs> well, if you're there, I don't see a reason why we can't um, slightly project 
Sarah, I appreciate so your, uh, I your commitment I to keeping my obsession of the script. About, uh, no, that's okay. Being, I love your obsession of where you are. I don't remember what I'm <laughs> trying. <laughs> um, but, uh, okay. And then what do we have? Okay, so she talks about the Black Rock. I just think this illness thing is fascinating. Yes. Uh, and I, and I, I just, I really, I cannot enough press how vital this battle between, like, evidence-based rationality mm-hmm. and and sort of like faith-based feeling yeah. is presented not, it's not even presented as a dichotomy because it isn't one they operate simultaneously. It's a dialectic. In ev- yeah. In every, it is a dialectic in, in every episode in, within every character's arc. Um, I just think it's important that we always press it. Yeah, I think, I think it's like all... knowing knowing what I know about Lindelof, it's you know kind of like a probably a soft critique from kind of a faith because he you know considers himself a fairly spiritual guy, I guess. Mm-hmm. So it's like you know kind of a soft critique from that aspect. Uh, I one of the, one of the other things I don't really have any notes on it. Uh, one of the other things I was reading just to brush up on like Rousseau and Enlightenment stuff. Uh, there's been a big push. Uh, kind of in left-wing circles, kind of like the social democratic circles, especially in like Jacobin magazine and stuff to kind of re-embrace the enlightenment. And, you know, they think it's you know, one of the reasons mm-hmm. we're not you know doing as well as we can compared to the right or whatever, which is, uh, but one of like, there's been some really good critiques of that from a more materialist, uh, like Marxist and also Spinoza oriented, uh, perspective, uh, in viewpoint magazine that mm. kind of critiques the enlightenment from that, uh, angle as well. So I've just been kind of avoiding but also surrounded by enlightenment <laughs> stuff for a while <laughs> well and there's no shortage of it in, i mean because of all the enlightenment philosopher imagery and loss there's no shortage yeah, exactly. of it here exactly. and because it's like a micro i mean i think i can safely say that what they've produced is a kind of microcosmic example of a society yeah yeah absolutely that's so clear i mean we were talking about lord of the flies in our last episode and how this is different but also similar and mm-hmm. crucial ways and um it's not too early to say like clearly the island is allegorical in some sense um must be it i mean it is <laughs> and it's like uh it's important that this that enlightenment is considered um some kind of vital i don't know like epoch um within this microcosmic society yeah yeah for sure um Maybe, i want do you think here's a here's a side fan theory we love fan theory do you think that oh, lindelof yeah. Has, this is all stuff you, we could debunk with Google in one click. Do you think that Linilov has like a, a, a philosophy degree and somewhere in his life someone was like, you'll never use that. <laughs> and then this is his way of being like, I showed them. So he's trying to bring it into every episode here in Google right now to see if he has Education. a What's your alma mater? <laughs> oh, man. But I mean, you know, I wouldn't put it past any philosopher. Including us. Um, <laughs> so then, what? Let me just think about where we're at at the end. By the last episode twelve, we we get. Oh, this is the one with Kate's. A little bit more of Kate's backstory. 
this is the first time that we see a second entry into someone's backstory, I think. You, you, you kind oh, of no, skipped over and, and, uh, episode and 11. Jack's. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And so we, we have um, Jack's backstory in 11 with his dad. Yes. And the whole doctor um, alcoholism conundrum. And then the last one, we have Cade's backstory. So we get the first the first second installments, if you will. This yeah. is the first time we've, we've gotten to revisit and get a little bit more of, of people's backstories. Um, Sorry, I just want to interject and yes. say that Damon Lindelof went to New York Film School. So uh, like, like a philosophy degree. No, no, <laughs> no, New York Film School is not a thing. <laughs> New York University, NYU, okay. and attended film school there okay so i think um there's a very good chance that there was a lot of philosophy in film right. school i don't doubt that right. at all or at least like but it is also practical grandparent being like you'll never use that degree. right and i'm right. sure i mean it's clear to, it's also clear to me that he like reads a lot <laughs> yes oh my like, gosh. So, all the writers probably that was oh, like yeah. Yeah, He's mandatory a that massive they, fucking yeah. nerd yeah. yeah. Um, As we all are, of course. Of course. Why yes. else are we here? <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. Uh, yeah, we get um, some of Jack's backstory and some of Kate's backstory. Um, I was just going to say that Jack is still annoying to me. I, I do think he did the right thing. Not that like the plot necessarily matters um, for this, like whatever. But, you know, his but relationship is actually with his dad, kind of. It, it kind of points to a bigger theme of the show, which is like the inability to let go. Which is already apparent in in Jack, like yeah, even exactly. in the first twelve exactly. episodes. He's, and and sometimes it pays off, right? Like when he saves Charlie. Exactly. Yes, and it, it did pay off then. And you're almost with. They kind of make the audience feel like, oh come on, Jack! Like because he's like, we just we just gotta keep going, and then he gets like beaten to shit by Ethan, and he stands up, he's like, gotta go, and I Kate's gotta like, go. Kate's like, you just got beaten up. Like, can we stop for like a second? And he's like, no. So like, he, he's annoying despite sometimes him being right. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's just like interesting to see his backstory. I can't, I don't think it's as early as this, but sometimes in the flashbacks of him at the hospital, you get the wig that he, they put on him as oh, a young guy. The, the wig so is so horrifying. bad. And then, um, so horrifying. And then, um, episode 12, we get uh, Kate. Uh, this is the scene that I said was the continuity error for me the swimming, and then, like, you know, flashback to Joanna dr- drowning, and no one offers to swim out. Together. And why does Sawyer insist on wearing jeans when he's swimming? What the fuck? <laughs> like, there, there's no way that a, co- a confident character like that would swim in jeans. He would just swim naked. I mean, my God, I know that he's already I swimming naked in another television. episode. Yeah, no, I know that it's primetime television. I know you can't have a lot of butts on primetime in 2004. I'm just saying, Josh Holloway, what is going on? <laughs> swimming in jeans. Um, so is it in capital yeah. letters? My notes, <laughs> and also I despise the fact that of all the titles they could have chosen for this this episode, <laughs> they chose a fucking pun. Yeah. Whatever the case may be, they do that a lot. There's they a lot do of do puns. That a lot. Oh, yeah. Just, it's annoying, whatever the case anyway, may be. It's, it's very on the nose, which is why to me it was funny earlier when I said they cut out a scene of the dart attack because they said it was too cheesy. And I'm like, Fame, <laughs> right? like record when, scratch when has that sound been an like issue before. Yeah, when, when I mean, in fairness, issue? that is a more serious episode. Yes. Yes, it is. But apparently some of the writers took issue with, they thought that the like pounding on Charlie's chest was too cliche. But I didn't even feel that way. When I watched it, I was really stressed. Yeah, I was like, stressful. this is a stressful scene. But think, like, I mean, think about how that episode Beating progresses. Like you have, you, you have 
since the, this this four episode progression mm-hmm. is a very serious chunk we've chosen actually because there's yeah. very little humor in it. We start with in episode uh, in episode nine we've got like torture and Rousseau and mm-hmm. darkness and it's all scary and then episode ten. Claire's nightmares are horrifying. I mean, my God. I know yeah. Jonathan wants to talk about dreams, um, but Claire's nightmares are truly set up as, as hor- horrifying. And Horrific. then Charlie being hung, they show you everything. It's not even implied. Yeah. 11 Apparently, and 12, we do get a bit of humor, like with, uh, yeah, so with, with Hurley setting up the golf course. And, oh, yeah. Which is, yeah. well, uh, in, there, there, there are a handful of like Hurley feel good moments throughout the series. This is like probably the first yeah, real one. And it's, Hurley's so important. He's such an important character. I love him. Yeah. Um, but uh, Charlie's hanging. Yeah, apparently they had him up on a cable for like five full hours while they were shooting yeah. that. And he said that he went into a meditative state because oh, he was man. up there for so long. And then when they got him down on the ground um, and Jack was like pretending or like, you know, the actor was pretending to like slam the shit out of Charlie's chest. Um, Dominic Monaghan. Poor Dominic, Dominic Monaghan said that he uh, hardly flinched because he was just like staying in this dormant meditative state throughout the whole thing. Wild. I don't know. I mean, I can understand that. You get yeah. into a sort of a God. set's a weird place. <laughs> yes. Sets okay. Are wild. So that was my. I think that, that mostly captures my Did first thoughts. Um, it's pretty scattered today because I started grad school since we. Uh, yeah, Sarah started <laughs> grad school back in our last. my brain online, is, so my that's even worse. Brain is mush. Um, but. Jonathan, let's go back to episode nine and start with a deep dive there, because I know you have a lot you want to talk about Saeed's backstory. Well, yeah. I, I, I don't have too much prepared just because, you know, life is chaos and I've been working a lot. But uh, I just wanted to give like a little bit of background about like Iraq and the history of conflicts in the country, because, uh, you know, like you were, we were saying earlier, it's rare that, you know, we get any kind of portrayal of, you know, that region at all. And, you know, the people of that region as human Especially and having like actual motivations and yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah and like, like post Iraq invasion. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, Saeed, first thing we get of Saeed's flashback is him uh, interrogating a uh, Shiite or more likely a, a member of the Ba'ath Party who is a Shiite sympathizer because uh, the Ba'ath Party was primarily Sunni despite uh, the Sunni being a minority in Iraq. And mm-hmm. you know he's asking about a bombing at the Ba'ath Party headquarters. So it's probably taking place during the Shia uprising uh, in like the spring of 1999. Um, there was uh, you know, a lot of... Uh, Shiite and Kurdish uh, uprisings, attacks on you know police stations, party headquarters, that kind of stuff, and um, so that kind of tells us you know Saeed's uncomfortable allegiances. You know he's obviously a member of the Republican Guard, which is you know the Ba'ath Party's military, but to really kind of understand the conflicts there, I think it's important to have kind of a background of how. Iraq developed over, you know, the past, you know, since World War II, basically, um, there was, uh, I don't have the dates written down for 
the first bit, but um, there was Does it a really matter. Not even in, I have a, I have a master's in history, and I can tell you the dates pretty much don't matter. <laughs> but you know, there was uh, you know the British installed a monarchy in Iraq in like the I think the fifties, and they basically you know, controlled all of Iraq's oil production. Iraq didn't get any of the revenues from that, and mm-hmm. uh, you know the Ba'ath Party came to power, uh, you know, sort of as a, a revolutionary force that was kind of pan Arab nationalist. Um, it's technically, you know, the, the official name says it's socialist and, you know, they had bits of, you know, public infrastructure and that kind of thing. But, you know, they're really socialist in the same way the Nazis were socialist, which is, you know, not at all. Uh, they were very anti-communist. They uh, weren't like a mass movement based party at all. Uh, I know the Soviet Union actually just like outright called them fascist. Um, right. But um, after the uh, after the revolution, uh, the general uh, Abdul Karim Qasem kind of like pissed off the U.S. and the Brits by nationalizing the oil. Um, this was before the Bath Party took place. Um, he wasn't he was a communist sympathizer. He wasn't nationalist enough for the Bath Party. So he he, he was, you know, making a lot of enemies, both within Iraq and, you know, the U.S., you know, the British. Um, In 62, JFK asked the CIA to plan to overthrow Qasim, um, which happened in February of 63. The Ba'ath Party, uh, with a little help of the CIA, as always, um, you know, overthrew Qasim. And he was executed on live television, apparently. Um, They started, you know, rounding up. Yeah, they they started rounding up communists. They killed like 5,000 communists. They deported a lot of foreign communists. The U.S. government uh, contacted Ba'ath leaders like hours after the coup to pledge recognition and support. You know, they provided arms. Uh, You know, this was kind of their... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this was their attempt to like, you know, the Soviets were supporting the Kurds in Iraq at the time. So it was, you know, the U.S. trying to fuck over the Soviets, as always. Um, And then in 68, the U.S. backed uh, the Shah in Iran, who um, was installed by a U.S.-backed coup in 53. As you know, that's what the U.S. likes to do, just overthrow, you know, uh, whatever countries their interests lie in. And there was uh, in sixty in sixty eight when uh, Nixon teamed with the Shah, attempted what they called triangulation between Iraq, Iran, and the Kurds to try and you know get everyone on the same page. And then Iraq was starting to you know kind of thrive under the Ba'ath Party because of like all the oil wealth where they had nationalized the oil for themselves, and you know the U.S. backed. Iraq in the Iran-Iraq war, you know, they backed Iraq mm-hmm. when they were gassing the Kurds. They, you know, so there's tons of U.S. interference in the area, which led to a lot of, uh, you know, more sectarian conflicts. Um, you know, the Sunnis kind of took over the Ba'ath Party. Like I mentioned, they were, you know, a minority in Iraq. So that led to a lot of pushback from the Shia and the Kurds. And so that kind of all builds to, uh, you know, the, the conflicts that Saeed is finding himself in, you know, in this episode. Uh, so that was really, you know, just my background that I wanted to 
to offer yeah, for everyone's no, edification. For sure. And it's interesting, like, like Saeed's character is such a strong-willed, like, very sure of himself yeah. person, which is important, I think, for just, like, it's important that they don't display him as, like, ever, like, like he doesn't give in to any of the American characters, which I think is like an important thing. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Own. Like he has he his own morality on holds his, his own. own. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's important that they just display and and of course he's lovable. Like even when we find out all about all the horrible stuff he's done, you still love Saeed because yeah. you are yeah. a monster if you don't love Saeed. Yeah, he's super <laughs> he's a super sweet character. And he's so sincere. I mean lot he's sincere in a way that lots of the other characters kind of aren't. Yeah. Yeah. Um and he's afforded He's afforded the many opportunities to be sincere in a way that someone like Sawyer it wouldn't work for someone like Sawyer. Right. He's sincere. Yeah. And we really we really start to see that in uh and I think it's in episode twelve when he's getting Shannon to help translate Russo's notes. Yes. Yeah, and exactly. Kind of, that you, you see like man. his Yeah, well that's interesting because it's funny that you um, compared him or contrasted him with Sawyer because originally Shannon was her was supposed to be in a romantic scenario with Sawyer. Ooh, blondes! That, that oh, was, interesting. Yeah, blondes. yeah, that was like the original plan for for Shannon and Sawyer, but for whatever reason, I'm, they kind of started building a romance with Saeed with instead. Yeah, yeah I'm pleased with that. Also, because it's so sweet, and they seem like they would be such opposites. Because, like, yeah. up until this point, Shannon is portrayed as this like vapid valley girl, yeah. whatever. Yeah, and then like Saeed has this like crazy life story, and he's like, you know, he's so um, accomplished and smart. He's the scientist, yeah. like he can fix all the technology, and like yeah. them them connecting is really it's so sweet. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's one of my notes actually for. One of my notes for episode 12 is just Saeed and Shannon are cute. They are. They are. They're so cute. And it's important. Um, like, yeah, it's sweet and they seem like opposites and everything. But I think it's a, it's actually like a vital plot point because it show, it demonstrates that who these people are in the outside world is the result of often oppressive mm-hmm. forces that are not within their control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And on the island, they really do... I mean, it's this it's this notion of tabula rasa like that came up earlier in the mm-hmm. season. It's that you genuinely do get a fresh start on the island because you don't have like and it's not that the island is perfect. the same social ties. You don't have the same social ties. It's not subject to if we want to use a philosophy buzz phrase, it's not subject to the same social contract that the outside world has developed since the Enlightenment. <laughs> the island has not had its own sort of um like tangential development that the outside world has and you yeah. don't have a government um conscripting you into an army that makes you torture right. people and you don't have yeah like a wealthy um, family putting you in like yeah. private boarding school or whatever yeah. yeah and so who are these people without those outside forces is a who are we man relevant question yeah who yeah bro who are who we are speaking we? of and speaking of wealthy question. families putting uh people in boarding school Oh, did you watch the Paris Hilton documentary? I haven't watched it, but I listened to an episode of True and On that talks about it. I'm uh, Brace, one of the hosts of True and On, 
was also sent to a similar boarding school that's like related to the one that Paris Hilton went to. And it sounds absolutely I watched fucked. it last night. It's a great documentary. And actually, I was, like literally before you brought that up, I was just thinking in my head, like, too bad Paris Hilton didn't land on the island and get to start over. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> Shannon basically is, you know, like, more or yeah, less based Paris on Hilton. Paris Hilton. It's 2004, so it is the year that One Night in Paris sex tape came out, which is like Paris's Paris's story. Let's see. Yeah, 13 million views, this one. uh, Aaron's looking it up. Sorry. Documentary on YouTube. It's really good. (laughs) I highly recommend everyone watch it. Paris Hilton uh, was sent to... Provo Canyon School in in Utah, which is a boarding school for troubled youth. And they like, you know, they basically say they, they like help fix your kids like in a boot camp scenario. But it's actually just like they fully like super abusive, like physically, mentally, sexually abuse kids and like lock them in solitary confinement when they speak up and they drug them. And it's crazy. And anyway, it's a great documentary. Well, and once again, I mean, what how do we develop? How do we what are our standards of credibility? I mean, think about the life that Paris Hilton has had in the media and how absolutely no one has ever taken her seriously. She no. is consistently a joke. I recently watched. This is so far off topic. Mm-hmm. I am so sorry, but I promise. No, are good. So I recently watched for the first time as an adult the 2005 masterpiece House of Wax. Whoa. <laughs> She's in that. Shit. She's in that. Yeah. And I grew up, you know, uh, being myself annoyed with Paris Hilton because of internalized misogyny. Of course, we all were. We were told not we, to be yeah, like her. To- told not to be like her. Told that she's annoying. To- consistently... Um, you know, had this image of her pummeled into our heads as this sort of like vapid, mm-hmm. vapid party girl. Yeah. Girl. Yeah. And then, you know, and in fairness to her, like if you're put in that position, how does one develop a career except to somewhat buy into it? We saw this happen with Marilyn Monroe. We saw this happen with Paris Hilton. We see it to some extent happen with Megan Fox, who then came around and, and, and fought it. But, um, she did shows like The Simple Life, in which she happily presents herself as this sort of vapid character. But of course, it's fake. It's uh, That's not who she really is. That's not who anyone is. No one is like that. Um, and so, I mean, it's just, it's so interesting how I watched House of Wax and still, as an adult, went in with this idea like, oh, I'm going to be so annoyed by Paris Hilton. And then was flabbergasted to discover that she is not at all bad in that movie. Really? Of all the things that are wrong with that film, I have to say, I don't think that Paris Hilton is one of them. (laughs) She was was also in an episode, what was I watching recently? It was an episode of Veronica Mars that I was watching recently. And she's in Repo, the genetic opera, which is like the pinnacle of sort of early to mid 2000s like um, camp. But I love that movie and she's great in it she fits in you guys should both watch the doc because it's really good and she talks about how it's got all like up. a fake um persona of course that she built and she talks about how it's a lot of it is a result of going to these abusive schools and coming out of it and wanting to like become successful and to her that was like become rich become famous and this is like yeah. how she did it and she wanted to break away from her past life blah 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 um but it, i i do highly recommend watching it and it's this idea it kind of ties in in a weird way because it's the idea of like the tabula rasa starting over, not, you know, like, like, who are you really at the core of yourself? Like, yeah. who are you if you don't have anything around you that you know, physical things you grew up with, no, like pressures of being a certain way or a certain character. And it's, 
interesting, like which characters fall into maybe who they were before and which ones try to break free of that. Yeah. I think they all try to break free in a certain sense, but there are some that like Jack finds it hard to not be maybe who he was before. Like he's, maybe, yeah. you know, like so far he's still just like the stubborn doctor. And again, his you know, trouble letting go. Trouble letting go. And yeah. who, and I mean, I just think this is such an interesting and it's a prescient question for our real world outside of lost. Also, I yeah. actually have been watching when I can, I've been watching uh, Janaya Khan, who's the ambassador for Black Lives Matter internationally, they do these Sunday sermons on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And in one of these sermons, um, they spoke at length about like, like who, who are you? And they were addressing sort of like white communities generally, but also the whole world. Like, who are you without the agenda of white supremacy? Who mm-hmm. are you without the agenda of patriarchy? Mm-hmm. And in a way, Lost is in a way less eloquent way and in a more mm-hmm. pop culture way because like i mean janiya khan's an educated philosopher right. but like um who like who are you without the agenda of wealth of mm-hmm. uh of your family ties mm-hmm. of your notion of your your image of yourself as like incapable of being a mother like claire she struggles mm-hmm. with this idea that she can't be a mom but where the hell is that coming from she's in that she's a good person she works hard like right all you have to do to be a mom is be a pregnant person who has a baby yeah precisely <laughs> and so and so like Jack, I think it's interesting because you know what? I think part of the reason maybe he's so annoying because he won't let go is because he won't let go, but for reasons that are different than everyone else. I think Jack actually does kind of think he's the shit. Oh, Ever- he must. Yeah, like yes. everyone, yeah. everyone else sort of hates themselves a little. Right. Even if they're totally lovable. Like right. Claire and Hurley are the sweetest people ever. Charlie's the sweetest person ever. And they struggle with this real deep-seated, like, non-narcissistic, like battle of like am i a good person yeah i think jack believes he is a good person yeah despite being presented with evidence that sometimes he is not yeah and he can't let go of his identity as a good person whereas everyone else on the island can't let go of their identities as bad people right right and And that's one of the main ways in which i think he's different than everyone else it's a good point and it's a good like way of noticing how some people end up annoying you because when people like think they're the good guy what is more annoying than that like, yeah precisely <laughs> like when you're like i but every like so the the you know the idea of the island is if fantasy and if for some people in some ways like some people would love to be able to start over on an island where no one knew them and you know yeah but jack um it's kind of like you know, the island shows us this idea, like, everybody has flaws, duh, right? Duh. We're, all, we're all human. <laughs> but, like, Jack is just obsessed with, like, like if I do the right thing, then I am the person who's the, the right person, and, the, and like, I am the one right person. Like, this is kind of how he comes yeah. across. Like, he can never... I love it. It thrills me when Kate disagrees with him. Yes. Because, <laughs> um, because <laughs> handle how much he thinks that he's right all the time and yeah. like when he whenever she's like oh i'm gonna go into the forest to do xyz and he's like <laughs> and, and i'm like <laughs> how dare oh. you and like, but you're someone who i sort of have a crush on and so you must agree <laughs> it's like i just want to see jack crumble do we see him crumble like but in a good way like i want to just see his ego destroy you have to rebuild oh sweetie you have no idea (laughs) i want to see him rebuild because i do believe he can be a good person but not for the reasons that he's insistent Mm -hmm. that he's a good person yeah 
he, he J- Jack is a journey unto himself. I'm I will sure. say that. I'm sure. Him. I'm sure he is because he's the main character in a way. And like, you know, yeah. And uh, he's the, he's the, Whatever, and he will leader. continue to annoy you, but you'll under, you'll you'll come to understand. Yeah, I just think it's interesting how I mean I hadn't even realized that crucial difference until just now when I articulated it on the fly. That's good. That was a good insight. But uh, good insight alert. <laughs> <laughs> it helps to explain why someone like Sawyer gets a turnaround. Why we can come to love Sawyer is because yeah. he doubts his morality. He is a bad person, and he knows it. And then works on it. Uh, who's going to say, I'm going to just say this now. It's a few episodes ahead, but um, I'm afraid I won't remember it next week. Uh, when they build the raft and, you know, whatever, spoiler alert, everyone listening has seen Lost, I assume, or doesn't care. <laughs> I hope spoilers. so. <laughs> if you haven't seen Lost, turn this off and go watch it go first. Watch. Um, but like, anyway, <laughs> there's a moment it doesn't even matter that it's on the raft. Let me just say, there's a moment when Sawyer is singing Bob Marley. Oh my God, and this moment. Michael uh, is like, you singing Bob Marley? And Sawyer's like, no. <laughs> and he's like, and literally he goes like, redemption song. And like, everybody knows redemption song is by Bob Marley. And like, Michael knows that because he goes, oh, you, you're saying, like, it was funny the question. He's like, you singing Bob Marley? Like, cool. And Sawyer's like, no, right away. And I'm like, why are you denying you were singing? It's a Maybe Sawyer is a fan of the Joe Strummer cover, which yeah. was released a year prior. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> like, this is a subplot that Lindelof had is that Sawyer was just a Joe Strummer fan. <laughs> Sawyer's secretly a punk. You know, he uh, loves the clash. I, I just like, it's just so Sawyer because it's like. But then, but then, but then the follow up to Sawyer saying no is like, what, you like Bob Marley? And it's like, who doesn't like Bob Marley? And because and Michael's trying to be like, yes, everyone likes Bob Marley Sawyer. It's like, don't. <laughs> <laughs> no. There's there, there are a couple of more. There are a couple of other like in the episodes that we're we're covering here. There are a couple of more like Sawyer moments that kind of like hint at him like becoming a more likable character. <laughs> like when he's having like when he's having his uh, conversation with Walt about the abduction. He's yeah. like. You know, being really uh, like, why am I getting my my news from a six year old? And right, well, and then there's a very, very, very funny, charming scene. And then when he's like making fun of uh, or when Michael and Hurley are making fun of him for trying to pick the lock on the Halliburton. And- yeah, well, and he also Hurley comes to him uh, needing the flight manifest, which yes. Sawyer is in possession of. Right, right, right. And Sawyer <laughs> is seen lounging in a chair wearing what appeared to be like children's sunglasses <laughs> and then he just gives the manifest to Hurley I was so relieved because yeah. I was not ready to watch another goddamn struggle with Sawyer being like this is mine yeah. and, then, and, then <laughs> so he, and then he participates in the golf game much the to golf. everyone's shock so and it is nice. Kate that brings him oh, in yeah. sort of hesitant but he comes in and he's like I I I bet that uh, the doc gets crushed and I'll, right. I'll wager two tubes of sunscreen or whatever. <laughs> and and uh, everyone's kind of hesitant and doesn't really want him there. But then it's Kate that says, yeah, I'll take you up on that. Yeah. So it's it, this is the moment when he starts to turn around and become slightly more lovable. Yes. I think. <laughs> Thank God. I love Sawyer. He's a breath funny. of fresh air. It is a breath of fresh air. <laughs> And um, also, can we talk about the Halliburton comment you just made before I forget? Yes. Oh <laughs> like... 
Am I just out of the loop of briefcases? Like, why did everybody know what well, happened? <laughs> I, I was saying this to Leah. Like, I was watching that episode, like, just before we started recording. And I was like, I had my headphones on. I was, like, giggling at that line when, like, Hurley in particular is like, good luck, dude. And Leah was like, what's so funny? I was like, they're just acting like everyone knows yeah. that Halliburton's are, like, hard to pick <laughs> yeah. the lock of or something. It's like, what's he doing? Oh, he's trying to pick a Halliburton. Oh, oh, oh. And it's like, I'm, I, I don't get that joke like oh it's funny it's a funny choice for to keep that joke. yeah um, another really just apropos of nothing another really funny scene from that episode is when sawyer is like up in the tree and throws it off to try and bust <laughs> it open and kate just like sneaks out of nowhere and takes it and runs away that is yes like absolute slapstick it's like something out of like a tom and jerry cartoon yeah Yeah. and then yes and also her um like sometimes it just frustrates me when these people won't just tell each other like like oh they're so bad at communicating like it's this it's this television thing where like um you know sometimes you have to cut out lines for the sake of like it's not how normal people communicate but just to get the show moving you have to cut out like hello on the telephone like and how now everyone thinks that americans don't answer the phone by saying hello or goodbye because tv has cut it out um but but this thing where it's like why don't you just tell sawyer the case belonged to the marshal there's guns in there like because they need to like ma- there's you know they need to manufacture that drama right. and conflict. But it's like it's not like if they <laughs> it's, open it's a it, lazy it's kind of like a lazy way of doing that it's though. It's not like if they open it he's gonna want the toy plane that ends up being inside. He's yeah. probably gonna just throw it off to the side because he wants the guns. Like she could have just yeah. like so sneakily been like it's guns help me open it open it and then just like take the toy plane and be like, Oh, cool. Like whatever. I, I, I know it's for the drama, but it's just funny because like, <laughs> no one communicates. And then there's this no. point during one of these episodes or uh, an upcoming episode when Hurley tells, Oh, it's not yet because we haven't seen his backstory, but he tells Charlie that he doesn't, uh, the, how much money he's worth. And Charlie doesn't believe him. Oh, yeah. And, and I'm like, why yeah. can't you just, and then like, Charlie walks, he's like, yeah, right, man. And he walks away and, and then Hurley just watches him walk away. I'm like, Hurley, why don't you say I won the lottery? <laughs> like, <it's> really, <laughs> like, to me, the communication sometimes I'm like, just talk to each other. I know. <laughs> well, I also just think it's mean- funny how charlie reacts because it's a very like younger brother yeah he was like yes and i'm worth 11 trillion dollars myself yeah exactly um but i'm getting off base um i i forget john before the episode you said there was something about episode 10 you wanted to talk talk about the dreams dreams. yes we all want to talk about the dreams lock at the card table yeah aaron you can you seem like you have a lot more to say on that well, than I do, I so I can know. just interject with. I'm obsessed with. with dream imagery. I just think it's so interesting how Claire's nightmares are. I mean, I, I, I sort of said like early on in the in the show, I was like, Sarah, you're gonna be spooked. Sorry, yeah. girl. Because <laughs> there are as much as it is primetime television and it's watered down. There's a lot of horror um, imagery and horror mm-hmm. tropes that get used in certain episodes. And it's sort of smattered about, like, it's not very in your face all the time. And it kind of comes out of nowhere. But I think that's what probably drew me to it initially when I was young and did not know yet that I was. Oh, yeah, free. same. Absolutely. Um, and so episode 10 is a very, very, very in your face moment where they're where the, the filmmakers are carefully using horror tropes. Mm-hmm. 
um, to, to lay something out. And I, there's this weird thing with genre. We talked about this in like the first episode when we were talking about magic realism versus surrealism, yada, yada, yada. There's something really important about genre, which is like, I could give two shits about categorizing stuff. I don't actually care how uh, something fits into a particular genre. I don't care about defining it. I'm not one of these people who's going to have a fight with you over whether something's sci-fi or fantasy or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, But I have to know the categories because they provide information to the audience. Mm -hmm. When you see um, qualities of a genre, you then have an expectation for where that is going Mm -hmm. based on how that genre has been presented to you in multiple different forms of media your whole life. Mm -hmm. And so in episode 10, Raised by Another, when we open with Claire's nightmare that is horrifying and uses all the cuts of horror, all the tropes of horror, Mm -hmm. it uses John Locke with scary contacts in and has her waking up and absolutely screaming her bloody head off. She puts her hands in the crib and it's blood and it's just blood it's it's eh, horrifying horror. and so that is not just important because it's like interesting and frightening it's important because it's relaying to the audience that we're in like a horror-esque plot now mm-hmm. with with regard to claire's plot it's foreshadowing exactly what's going to happen to claire what happens to pregnant women in horror movies, when they start having bad dreams. Well, we know from Rosemary's Baby that there's something satanic potentially going on. Right. We know um, from all sorts of more modern movies that, like, maybe there's a ghost in the house or someone mm-hmm. is after you or your baby is evil. Mm-hmm. or And so there's so many different meta narrative hints that these nightmares are giving the audience that tell you exactly what's going to happen to Claire. Yes. And this is the point in the series when I started having a blanket around me, mm-hmm. bringing it up to my um, because as opposed to my co-hosts, I cannot handle horror very well. Well, I don't have a blanket. But... Don't worry, we'll, we'll beat it out of you. <laughs> almost, I almost just <laughs> say that. Good God. Another thing I think uh, the, the dream sequences in Lost are kind of doing, uh, because we get, you know, throughout the series, we get a bunch of different dream sequences, and they always, yeah. um, you know, not just foreshadow, but there is almost like a psychic connection between dream and reality that's happening. And yeah. that's something that's you know, really uh, like Andre Breton uh, used that a lot in his work um, when I was talking about surrealism in whatever episode, episode two or whatever, before I talked about, you know, it, we can talk about Roy. <laughs> yeah, about how like, you know, psychic kind of like takes on two meanings in in this episode. You know, there's the psychic in the mm-hmm. sense of, you know, Freud and psychoanalysis and, uh, you know, the subconscious, but there's also psychic in like the, you know, extrasensory kind of, uh, like aspect. the guy, yeah. the, the actual psychic yeah. sends and Claire on, on the plane. Exactly. Yeah. So, and that's something, you know, there's, I don't, I don't have it on hand because my copy of Nadia is boxed up in my dad's garage and, 
Newfoundland, and it's impossible to find an English PDF of Nadia online, surprisingly. But like, there's scenes that involve you know, psychics in in Nadia, and but also like a lot of what Breton talks about in like uh, communicating vessels, in particular, is the role of you know dreams in accessing the psychic and um, like with Claire's dream, it's not just that it's foreshadowing; it's that. I think like she actually has that psychic connection that's drawn out by the island that lets her know that she's in danger. You got cut off. Hang on. Yeah, I think my headphones just died. Give me a second. Oh, Jonathan, we left off. You were talking about Freud. Okay, and now we want to talk about psychic in two senses is where you left off. You were Mm -hmm. talking about psychic in the external sense and psychic in the internal sense right and i I was just you know saying i was kind of at the end of my point i think maybe um i think i was talking about (laughs) how there's you know uh in uh breton's book nadia there's um you know there's a scene in which they uh nadia i think visits a, a psychic again i don't have the book on hand and you know in uh communicating vessels he talks a lot about uh the role of dreams and the psychic in the more, uh, mm-hmm. in the more uh, psychoanalytic sense, uh, and the mm-hmm. you know, kind of the breakdown between dream and reality, which we get with, uh, with Claire's dreams, kind of yeah. representing you know a, a more externally you know, ex- extra sensory psychic connection with the island. I think. Well, and it's interesting too because I mean, we I'm I was like only very partially joking about bringing in Freud because as you <laughs> never jokes about Freud. I never joke about Freud. I'm very serious about Freud. Uh, he's my boy. Um, but no, I, I mean, it's, it's actually, when you're talking about dreams and you have a psychic, a literal psychic character in the same episode, you have Zorro. You almost have to talk about Freud. Um, of course he penned the very famous interpretation of dreams, which is in two volumes, I think. And in it, he actually does, well, I had this joke I said to Sarah before, which was like, what do Cinderella and Freud have in common? They both make the claim that a dream is a wish your heart makes. And so for Freud, dreams are wish fulfillment of the psyche. And so I think we see in this episode where Claire, like, I brought up how characters doubt their doubt their choices and doubt their goodness. Um, Claire probably, to some extent, has wished at times that she wasn't in her in the situation she's in which is an amoral wish there's nothing wrong or right about it you're allowed to wish those Mm. things for yourself and so when she's dreaming it's scary on more than one level because it's it's frightening to think of something happening to her child and yet she resents to some extent the situation that she's found herself in Mm -hmm. Um, which we learn from episode 10 uh, when we see her backstory with her partner being a flake. (laughs) Yeah, he's like, it's cool, keep the baby, we'll be fine. He's the worst. He's the absolute worst. He's like, no, bro. Side note, their place, even though it's a studio apartment, is really fucking big and nice, and that must be expensive as hell in Sydney. Yeah, Sydney, like, even in the early 2000s, was crazy expensive yeah like there's no way that that was i mean this is on an artist and fast food service workers uh yeah seems silly anyway sorry but i wonder and so 
No, no, that's okay. I Because I'm almost done my thought, but I just also wanted to say, you know, we opened this with um, talking about the Enlightenment philosophers and Rousseau, and there's much ado about freedom in Enlightenment philosophy, um, what sorts of freedoms are afforded to humans upon birth, which freedoms are gained, what is freedom, yada, 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 what is fate, what is destiny? And these are questions that Lost poses at different um, moments also. And so when we have the interaction between dreams or wishes and desires, and then some claim to fate, I think it's really relevant that in episode 10, when we see Claire going to the psychic and the psychic gives her money and coaxes her to get on the flight, to get on the oceanic flight, Um, this is an interaction between humanity and freedom of will and something like fate. And I think what the question is, what, what the, the, perhaps one question among many that the show is posing is what is fate and what is the human role in fate? Can we even call it fate if, uh, if it has to be coaxed through a human agent, but how else would it happen? Would Claire have gotten on the plane if not for this psychic's interference, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I, the point is there right off the bat in season one, we're making philosophical claims and posing philosophical questions through mechani- through like TV and film devices mm-hmm. like dreams, like the flashback mm-hmm. and these meaningful characters that are sort of one off characters like like Claire's psychic and things like this. Mm hmm. And she's got this motherly, I'm so sorry I'm eating while I'm saying this. She's got this motherly intuition too, which is like another, like you were saying, like the role of the mother is there. And, Mm -hmm. you know, like there are lower plus just accounts of like, you know, pregnant women being sort of more in tune with certain things. Like that's, like, I can't even think of an example where, but I know I've seen that in like fiction before. It's everywhere. It's a Yeah. And so- Um, and then, so it's like her being able to say like, you know, something bad's going to happen or I got attacked at night or, Mm -hmm. you know, and then there's the classic, um, like you were saying the idea of the unbelievable woman, like Jack is like, no, you're hysterical. You're, Mm -hmm. you know, you've been any, you know, in fairness, he's just, and that's another horror trope and this is it. Yeah. It's a horror episode in many ways. Yeah. And he like, you know, in fairness to Jack, he's just coming at it from like a science perspective, but like. You know, I think the place for science is like starting to slip away, yeah. Jack. <laughs> but wake up, people. That word triggers me. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. So, so there's, um, so there's this like the idea of the the intuition of a mother, sort of, and and Claire's able to and different mothers. And um, yeah, like because her and Danielle at this point are yeah. very different. There is the moral Virgin Mary mother who's often seen in blue. This is Claire. She's good. The psychic calls her good. Mm, talk about that for a second. You were saying earlier about how I didn't recognize this. A lot of the flashbacks, Claire is wearing blue. Every and, single one. And or there's blue in her a, apartment. A Virgin Mary. Yeah, I think it's a direct line. I, I think there's no way that this isn't an intentional directional line specifically between it's a line directly from the our imagery of the Virgin Mary in pop culture, which is always has her in blue, to the statues of heroin in which it's the, the Virgin Mary who's wearing a blue which cloak, comes up later, which comes up pretty a little, quickly, a little later, but really quickly, and mm. and it's 
I, the only reason I'm bringing it up as a precursor is because Charlie in this episode says to Claire, I'm a drug addict. I'm addicted. Blah, blah, blah. Like this mm-hmm. is his, and it's, it's a moment of confession. So again, we have this sort of, and he's a Catholic. Yeah. So, he's a, yeah. so we have this again, sort of like confessional, um, mm-hmm. moment happening to Claire who is a mother mm-hmm. and she's doing it alone just in some sense. She's not a virgin, but she has this virginal quality. Right. Um, and so I, d- I think it's impossible in a way that this isn't making a claim to Claire's type of motherhood. She's a certain type of mother figure. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say that the notion of the mother comes up way later in the series. I will not say anything except that the notion of the cr- the crazy or insane mother becomes another trope that comes in, and we see that with Rousseau already now. Mm-hmm. There's a lot um, of there's a lot of stuff surrounding motherhood. Uh, that comes up yeah, throughout the series. And, and, yeah, it comes up way later. I mean, it's way too early to talk about it, but it's super important. So not just fathers, but also mothers. In a funny, like, uh, trivia about the show, the uh, actress that plays Claire read for Shannon, mm-hmm. and they cast her as Claire, and she accepted the role without looking at the script because she figured it was just going to be, like, another person on the island, so she didn't know she was going to play a pregnant woman when she accepted the <laughs> role, which is kind of because like yep. the character unwillingly is in this pregnant role so it's like yep. kind of like the art imitating life like you know funny sort of just like probably that's a bit of a reach but it is interesting that it happened and so claire playing the pregnant woman um was like a like a stretch pardon the pun for her mm-hmm. uh and for the actual character as well it's yeah well and i just think it's so fascinating how you know <laughs> We, there, there are not, there's not a huge wealth of pregnant main characters in American um, cinema TV. So we have like something like Francis McDormand's character in Fargo, Coen Brothers Fargo, not the TV show, although I'm sure that's also amazing. And like Juno. Um, We have Juno. Yeah, we have Juno. And, and then there's only like pregnancy you could write books and books and books and books and books on on pregnancy on in film and television Um, because it's so yeah it's so complicated um and then we have these like weird this weird subgenre of like pregnancy horror films that i mentioned earlier so we have like rosemary's baby and now in the in more contemporary world we have like prevenge which is um (laughs) i I hesitate to call it a a horror comedy because it's mostly just horror but um, or, or there's the like, um, envious, there's this trope of the like envious, um, Father. childless mother and oh yes, something mm-hmm. like Rousseau where mm-hmm. she is dangerous precisely because she is a childless mother. Mm-hmm. So that, I mean, that's that also problematic and pretty soon after these episodes. Yeah, it comes up really soon. A- I don't have a way to really tie it into this conversation, but one of my favorite movies of the past few years actually is uh, a, kind of about motherhood and pregnancy. It's called H and it's like kind of told in two parts. The first part is about this uh, like uh, middle aged, like maybe a little older, maybe in her like fifties or sixties woman who is really into, um, I can't remember what they're called, but uh like uh, reborn babies or something like that. They're like these like really lifelike baby dolls that like 
there's creepy. Yeah, it's it's so weird and like they like have like she has these like group meetings with other people who are like really into them they like customize them you know she does like these youtube videos of like hey i figured out if you know you when you're feeding your uh you know reborn doll or whatever you know if you just move you know press the the bottle in a little bit and it kind of looks like you know she's suckling or whatever and like the the second half is about this like young artist couple who the wife is pregnant and she goes in for um an ultrasound one day and the doctor's like you were never pregnant it's all related around some weirdness with like this meteor that crashes and stuff it's a really weird that happens in glee <laughs> it's it's a really good film. I should send it to you guys. But uh, it's one of the I more interesting yeah, portrayals of pregnancy that I've seen recently. Um, to to make this extra extra weird and to also um tie in <laughs> everyone's favorite surrealist David Lynch. Um, and if he's um, not your favorite, stop listening. <laughs> I want nothing to do with you. <laughs> But I want, I, I went, I had not seen Eraserhead uh, before. I have not oh. yet. Uh, you haven't? No. I know. Well, don't oh. worry. It's impossible to spoil. It's so good. I know. I'm, I'm but I went, I went to see it at the Tiff Bell Lightbox back in the pre-COVID world, BC. BC. In BC, before COVID. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and obviously, Did you see the 35 it. millimeter print? Yes. Oh, so nice. Um, I, I also saw it at a different time at the light box. But. I think Greg went to that, my partner Greg. And if I had known that... Well, did the- you come in for that? Sorry to interrupt you, Sarah. But John, did you come for that screening? I can't remember. I was visiting Toronto. This is when I was still living in St. John's. I was visiting Toronto and decided to stay a few extra days to go to that screening there was also a screening of videodrome oh. with like a talk beforehand yeah, about like techno surrealism that was really cool yeah, like a week of and what were you gonna say about greg I was just your- everyone i knew was there and i didn't go because i didn't know covid would hit and i'd never go to the movie theater <laughs> again That's all. anyway i went to see it it was amazing but that night i had this insane dream that, and this is gonna Okay, this is so weird. For our listeners who are not open to the weird and the wonderful, A, why are you watching Lost? B, um, really weird stuff. Boring. Yeah. But uh, I wrote this down. This was um, this was last modified a year ago, August 24th, 2019. This is almost a year ago, but it just popped into my head as we're talking about motherhood. Mm-hmm. So as a very weird potential drawing to a close of this bizarre episode of this podcast, I had a dream that I was... <laughs> To be clear, I've never been pregnant. I've never had a child. I don't know where the fuck this came from, except that I'd watched Eraserhead. <laughs> I uh, titled this Dream David Lynch Would Be Proud Of. <laughs> and it says, I'm just going to read it. Breastfeeding Zorro slash human baby hybrid slash slash anamorph? Question mark, question mark. But, but only blood will come out. Oh, no. I seem to live in a wine cellar. I talk with oh, someone, no. a visitor, and suddenly begin lactating. So I grab two empty wine bottles no. to catch the breast oh, no. milk. Oh, no. oh, there's so much to unpack. There's so much to unpack. I would. I, you could. You, Sorrel's whining at me now, too, which does not oh. help my case. But. Oh, my. This is a horrible. So and when I say Zorro, I mean my dog, not not Antonio Banderas. 
just to be very clear. Um, but I just, anyway, for some reason that just popped into my head and I, I'm so sorry to derail our beautiful am, podcast. No, in such I a am so, way. so glad you shared that with us. That's incredible. <laughs> That's one of the best dreams I've ever heard. Man, it's pretty bad. I have to say, um, what can Where anyone do we go? say after that? Um, oh, the hat. We should mention that the well, hat. That, that's oh, what yeah, I was about hat. to There's do because a- that's you know kind of the last thing yeah. to really talk about, and it's also a really important thing. Um, mm-hmm. Locke and Boone go off in the other direction to find Charlie, but instead they find the hatch. The hatch. So when I was first getting into Lost, the the first question, like the first mystery that I really remember people talking about, was like, "What do you think is in the hatch?" Um, so Sarah, do you have any, uh, do you know it's in the hatch yet? Have you, are you that far? Yes. Okay. What, what did you, what, what were your thoughts about the hatch? What did you, what were your theories? Yeah. So, I mean, from the episodes we're covering literally at this point, I think we just get like the clunk of something that falls onto the hatch, but then in the subsequent episodes, they are excavating the hatch, they being and lock, um, I, I was telling Aaron earlier this week that I'm I'm kind of bad at being the person in this podcast who <laughs> has theories ahead of time because I don't most of the time I just let the show kind of watch. That's, so that's fair. That's how I tend to watch things as well. I hate like yeah. Leah. Leah will often and when we're watching something together, Leah will always ask me like what I think is going to happen. I'm like I don't fucking know. Right. I don't usually predict what will happen ahead of time, but I do predict. Like sometimes they'll be like, oh, oh. I bet you this is this, or like, I bet you whatever. Um, like, I have a theory about Walt, but anyway, um, what is it? Share well, it with us. Okay, so the first, the hatch. The hatch. Mm-hmm. I don't think I had much of a theory, especially at this point. In the next couple episodes where they're excavating it, I honestly think I just thought that with all these references to the others, it must be some sort of just like storage container or hiding something that the others must already know about because they've been on the island for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, I figured the others were aware of it, which is why I was perplexed why, Like when nobody ever like came upon Boone and Locke doing this. I was like, kind, of, kind of expecting the others to be like, get away from our hatch. <laughs> um, but that didn't really happen. Um, but um, I also thought like, oh, maybe it has something to do with like how Rousseau was on a science mission and they they buried something, you know, <laughs> below the ground until in a few episodes it zooms out and we see how massive it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think I just didn't know. I figured, like, I guess part of me wondered if we would see the inside of the hatch, which I kind of guessed we would. But I don't think I thought we were going to see inside of it so quickly, um, like by the end of, well, it's the beginning of season two. But um yeah. Other than that, I can't say I had many like really concrete theories. It's I will say it wasn't what I thought it was. Like it ended <laughs> up being not what I predicted. Um, that's all I'll say about that right now. My theory about Walt, mm-hmm. because, and again, this is getting ahead, but we start to see Walt be this character where he's got a special gift, and maybe we should wait to and talk we, about we, this in the episode. Well, we do see oh. a little bit uh, of that when Hurley and Walt are playing backgammon, and Walt's you know he's. Mm-hmm doing that thing where he's blowing on the dice which is hilarious to me but he's like come on double sixes and he rolls double sixes and like that's it's not explicit by any stretch but it kind of 
is foreshadowing that he has uh, something about him. Mm-hmm. I haven't really even said this out loud yet or articulated this in my mind, but I do think there's some sort of element of Walt being like a chosen one. Like um, maybe a Jesus figure is too far, but I feel like he's going to be super important in terms of like his abilities and like his calling to the island. But I don't know. Like it's just sort of a, like I feel like he's going to be super important. But I also like do sort of know that the, the actor himself outgrew the role really fast. Just like that's like a like if he went through puberty really quickly and grew up really fast. And I know that from like reading about the show that he gets written in more sparsely as he got too big for the age that he was playing. Yeah, there, there were some definite challenges um, that that caused. I and mean, it's interesting the way they we'll, we'll get to it eventually, but the way yeah. they kind of work yeah. around that is really interesting in terms of its relationship yeah. to the plot of the show. Right. Mm-hmm. But that's all I'll say about Walt so far. Um, nice. Let me think about where we're at with this and where I thought we you know, my sort of predictions. Honestly, I think at this point I was just so wrapped up in like so much stuff happened in the last four episodes that I mostly want to know, like when we meet Ethan, I want to know like who the hell he is and who are the others. Like that's still a big outstanding thing at this point. Like, and why aren't the others working with Rousseau and why haven't like Rousseau says everyone died on her team. Well, you know, she, she uh what's the word when you mercy mercy she mercy killed everyone on her team um euthanizes yeah except she shoots them right like so we, we don't know she just says she- <laughs> but um uh yes. anyway but uh she uh so I, in my head like at this point i'm trying to be like well okay it's been 16 years why isn't ethan working with Russo? like why aren't they interacting more because she says she's never seen anybody else and it only took a month and a half and they've already met ethan right so i'm kind of like why the why is ethan here now sort of he's obviously interested in stealing the child so just kind of want to i want to figure out that part like or figure out is probably too strong of a word for lost but that's what i'm curious about (laughs) good i have nothing to add (laughs) i will say yeah i will just say like kids and dogs are always said to have like special qualities. And so you're not, Mm -hmm. I think that's clear that like they're setting Walt up as this kind of like, he's special. Well, he's special in some way in the same way that like perhaps John is special. They're Mm -hmm. the truest outcasts in the group because Mm -hmm. everyone else, even Sawyer, who's so belligerent, everyone else sort of works together and they're all grown ups. And he's, Mm -hmm. Walt is the only kid that we know of on Mm -hmm. the Island that we've seen on the Island. Mm -hmm. He seems to have been the only one on the plane who survived. Right. And so he's a true outcast in the way that John is a true outcast because he has experienced firsthand the island's mystical qualities in a way that no one else has. And uh, Locke told Walt about his... Exactly. Maybe not outright, but he said, like, the island has special powers. Yeah. And, and Walt believed him. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a very I, deliberate pairing, I think. Yeah, exactly. Spiritual boy, and Hurley. Hurley is a kind of uh, Hurley is a kind of conduit between people who refuse to believe and people who already do. And mm-hmm. so Hurley communicates with sort of both sides of the belief and disbelief. And yeah. he himself struggles, I think, with it, but he can communicate with everyone. I think that's Hurley's main thing. Is like he's a conduit and a yeah, mediator. he's a people person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, but that's all I have to say. 
Okay, yeah, that's look at that us. Seems go. like a good place to wrap everything up. Look at us wrapping up on a coherent, cogent thought. Did we? <laughs> well, <laughs> I think we did. I gotta go record uh, the reading of my story now. You ooh, can find us that's on exciting. My, yeah. You can find us on the socials. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm on Instagram, Aaron and underscore Mick. And don't bother following me on Twitter. Everyone follow her on Twitter. Be hilarious. She wakes up a thousands of followers. <laughs> um, you can find me on Ebom's World. Just kidding. You can find me on MySpace. You can find my old Pixel website on Wayback Machine. Unfortunately, <laughs> Neil Instagram.com forward slash Sarah.e.blackmore. And, and TikTok. Uh, yeah, and your TikTok as well. It's the same username. And I'm, as always, get ratified on all of the things, Instagram, Twitter, whatever else. Um, Aaron just had um, a short story published in a book of Newfoundland-themed uh, horror fiction. Uh, everyone should go to and or the evil corporate website and order a copy of that because her story is really fucking good. Um, I haven't read it. I just got a uh, copy in my hands down here at her house, so I'm going to read it soon, but Ooh. very exciting. Very proud it's, when one uh, of us anything artistic. I want to plug, I do want to plug um, the the editor who strung it all together and wrote the spine for these stories, Mike Hickey, who um, is a dear friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, he's on the socials too, Hickey, comma, Mike on all the things. Yeah, Mike's good people. Um, and then, uh, yeah, he's really good people. And then I want to also plug Engine Books, which is a small publishing house out, out of St. John's Newfoundland, which published this and publishes a lot of genre fiction. They're good people. Um, that's it. That's my duty. Finish. Cool. Oh, it's called Terror Nova. I don't know if oh, said yeah, that. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, hmm. I, I forgot to. I'm really bad at Terror uh, Nova. plugging. Terror Nova. Terra Nova. In case nobody knows what I'm saying. <laughs> Jonathan, can we end up? You all, everybody. <laughs> Stay frosty, everyone. Stay frosty. Stay frosty. <laughs> Bye.
just a 